Um, good morning and welcome to our uh, Sunday online service. Um, my name is Denzel. I'm very pleased to be with you today and to be sharing with you and I pray that our uh, service has been a, um, a real blessing for you. Um, it's my prayer today that uh, you'll be blessed, um, you'll be edified and that today's service would be useful to you um, as you grow in godliness or if you don't know the Lord, um, that you would come to know the Lord. So, uh, I'm very excited. I don't know if I sound it, but I'm very happy to share with you today. Um, so we're going through our um, Christmas mini-series, uh, looking at Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, and, chapter, and then verse 15, um, using Tim Chester's Advent devotional, uh, The One True Gift, which I recommend that you get your hands on. I should have had a copy with me. Uh, to show you, but I don't. But it's Tim Chester's One True Gift. It's a very uh, concise and really good devotional that um, you can use individually and with your family. Um, and it's very helpful in understanding Philippians 2, 5 to 11 and 15. So my task today is to help us understand verse 8. Um, I'm lucky I got one verse. Um, so um, I'll let you turn there. Um, I'm going to read from verses 2 to 11. Um, and obviously the focus is verse 8, but I feel like it helps us have a bit more of a comprehensive view as we follow along through the whole uh, line of thought that Paul gives us in Philippians. So I'll give you a second just to turn to uh, Philippians 2, verses 2 to 11, and then we can um, begin. So Paul says, um, and this is the Lord's word, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in, in, human, for in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And at home, feel free to give that a hearty amen. amen. <laughs> so now woven into this text um, is the idea of descent. Um, I've entitled today's sermon, The Humble Descent of Christ. The Lord Jesus, motivated by his far-reaching love for his people, makes himself, while remaining God, subordinate and lesser and lower and lower still. There are continuous downward steps that Christ takes in his humility. Beginning from verse 6, though he was in the form of God, meaning that he is God himself, the second person of the blessed trinity, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning the privileges which he is entitled to as God, he didn't hold to, he didn't cling to them. 
But we see here this downward movement. He emptied himself by becoming a servant and he was born as a human. And lower still, he humbled himself and was obedient. And even lower, he was obedient to the point of death. And even lower still, even death on a cross. It is a huge downward drop from being God himself, receiving the praise of the angels in everlasting self-sufficient comfort to have to now lower yourself and endure suffering and violence and abuse and shame through your wrongful execution. Now, where we see God humbling himself and making himself uh, lesser for the sake of others, the story of the world offers us a quite different story, a quite different attitude. The current religious vision of the world uh, is based on what some call expressive individualism, which is uh, basically the want to define or redefine yourself in whatever way you like and be allowed to fully and freely express that. The notion behind this idea is that the highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. It's very much about the self. We live in what is called the age of authenticity, which means we're in a time where you need to be your true self. If anything, be it society or outside influences or religion or politics, uh, prevents you from being your true self, it ought to be revolutionized and deconstructed so that everyone can be happy being who they truly are. And this kind of philosophy places the self the individual self at the center of society. In the past, we once believed that the earth was uh, the center of the universe and that the sun revolved around it. But now we know better that the sun is the center and the earth and the other planets revolve around the sun. So that old way of thinking was revolutionized and replaced with a new way of thinking, and that's called the Copernican Revolution. And in our own culture today, we have our own Copernican revolution. Society used to be what was described as the central thing around which everything re uh, revolves, the workforce, marriage, religion, so on. But now the individual self is the new center. Life is not so much about others anymore. It's about my wants and my needs. My marriage needs to satisfy my needs. My work only needs to advance my career. I need to secure the bag. In my personal life, my needs need to come before my family and friends, um, so it doesn't matter how I treat them. Even my church membership is not immune to this. Uh, the church I'm a part of needs to be fully uh, uh, everything that I want it to be. It needs to fulfill all of my needs, or I'm going elsewhere. We are encouraged to be self-obsessed. Did you know, a few years ago, staring at yourself on your phone camera, recording it, and posting it was a very weird thing to do? Somebody say, ouch. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. <laughs> um, we're encouraged to be self-obsessed. Um, an extreme example of our, our, our culture prioritizing self-obsession and self-importance um, is that some schools engage in what is called constructivist teaching or, constructivist, um, or constructivism, where the teacher doesn't actually teach definite concepts to the children, but the children are allowed to construct 
their own concepts and their own truth. So in maths, for example, uh, a child can decide whether or not 2 plus 2 equals 4. Um, it can equal 20, 10 if you want it, or 20. Um, it, it's up to you. But why is that? Because the self is so central that even basic truths can be reconstructed. You can reconstruct reality based on your own experiences and your feelings and what is right in your eyes. The world is at a place where it's literally losing its grip on reality because the, the prioritization of the self is so rife. Self-saturation and self-importance and self-obsession is the norm of our culture. But in our text today, we are shown a different way. We are shown into the mind and heart of God. Paul, in verses 2 to 5, instructs the Philippians to have a certain kind of mind, a certain kind of attitude. It's an attitude, not of self-importance or self-obsession, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your interests, but to the interests of others. And this is the attitude that Jesus Christ had. He is not self-important or insisting on his own rights and privileges, even though he, of all, has every right to. If anyone in all of existence has the right to, to insist upon his own way, it is God. He, in fact, is the most important, the most central, the most deserving, the most worthy of all beings in all of existence. He is the definition of existence. We come into being at some point, and before then there is no thought of us, and after then, uh, after we're gone, there is very little memory of us. But God simply is. He didn't come into being, he simply is. He has forever, eternally existed. He is the uncaused cause, self-sufficient, needing nothing, worthy of all praise and glory and honor from all of his creation. He himself spoke things into existence, and he doesn't just create and move on. He is, you know, we don't believe in deism, but all of reality, time, and space, and matter as we know it is held together and sustained by the word of his power. And should he choose to withhold his sustaining word and his sustaining hand, everything would collapse in on itself into disintegration and non-existence. Yet he who is above all, the unreachable one, the transcendent and high one, chose to, volunteered to, come down, unselfishly, humbly, looking not to his own interests, or his own importance, or his own comfort, but to the interests of others at his own expense. And verse 8 shows us that he did this in three ways. The first is that he descended into humanity. And we look at the phrase, and being found in human form, in verse 8. The very truth of Christmas is that God became a human, and that he did so in a very human way. If you read Genesis and you see that Adam was formed out of the dust and you understand some form of theology and you know that Jesus is the second Adam, you might expect that Jesus was somehow formed out of the dust just how Adam was. If you've seen Terminator 2, Judgment Day, 
Um, you might expect that Jesus might appear in lightning bolts and a supernatural orb or portal opens and Jesus comes out naked with a built body and he's like looking for clothes. But Jesus came the way of every man, every human. Uh, in, in January this year, the biggest highlight of my year was um, watching my daughter Cana be born. Um, I got to watch her come through the, the birth canal and into the arms of her mother. Um, and it was a very surreal and beautiful and awesome moment to witness. But it's also a very vulnerable moment. It's very critical. It's precarious and you have to be careful um, in that moment. And Cana, as newborns do, uh, didn't come out in great strength and with muscles and bursting on the scene. She came out in the sack. Um, she came out helplessly, uh, very delicate, very frail and defenseless, unaware of what's going on, unable to support herself. And Jesus Christ came this way as well. C.S. Lewis says, The second person in God, the Son, became human was born into the world as an actual man, a real man of a particular height, with a particular color, uh, speaking a particular language, weighing so many pounds. The eternal being who knows everything and created everything became not only a man, but before that, a baby. And before that, a fetus in his mother's womb, inside a woman's body. Jesus, on his rescue mission for us, passed from eternity into time. He passed from immortality into mortality. But not with great flashing lights and roaring thunder. But he came covered in amniotic fluid, arriving through the birth canal, crying helplessly as he came out. St. Augustine puts Christ's humanity this way. He was created from a mother whom he created. He was carried by the hands that he formed. Man's maker was made man. Ruler of the stars might nurse at his mother's breast. That the bread might hunger. That the fountain might thirst. That strength might grow weak. That the healer might be wounded that life might die. And in being born, Christ wasn't born a Caesar or a king or a monarch. He wasn't born in a palace or a castle, let alone a hospital. He was born in a lowly, poor manger, in a poor town, in a poor village, in a feeding box for animals. And he grew like a human talked like a human, walked like, ate like a human. Uh, he grew tired, he was thirsty. Uh, he experienced the struggles of daily life, daily mundane life. He experienced the seasons of winter and summer and autumn and spring. He experienced and felt real human emotions. He felt happiness and sadness and anger and grief and compassion and pity. He knows what it's like to have and to not have and to be in need. God Almighty, the untouchable one, stepped into the human experience and was touched by human suffering. The Lord traded his heavenly glory to become a human on this earth.
And in this, he can truly sympathize and identify with us because he was truly human as you and I are truly human. And I really want to revisit this later. The second display of Christ's humility is that he descended into humble obedience. Um, <clears throat> the phrase there is, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death in the middle of verse 8. In becoming human, the infinite God lowered himself even more by becoming obedient. He didn't throw his weight around, but lived a life of complete ob obedience and submission to God. We have to notice that the text says, he humbled himself. This is in the active tense. Christ is not weak-kneed or tame. He is not coerced or forced against his will, but he deliberately wills to be obedient. And his obedience is humble. In Matthew 4, when tempted by the devil and shown all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus didn't seek his own glory here on this earth and succumb to that temptation, but he resists the devil to complete his father's will. In John 6, when the people were forcefully going to make Jesus king, he didn't respond with his rightful entitlement to become king, but in humility he withdrew away from the people so that they couldn't make him king. Jesus' obedience is not characterized by seeking his own glory, even with the company he kept. We know that the rulers of this world and the powers that be only like, like to associate with uh, the upper class or the elite. But Jesus' obedience led him to associate with the lowly, the sick, the poor, the outcasts of society, the cancelled, the socially and politically incorrect, the unwanted. He came to the lowest. Jesus' obedience was also in full submission to the Father. When he teaches the Lord's Prayer, he says of the Father, your kingdom come and your will be done. In John 6.38, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 4.34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 14.31, but I do as the Father has commanded me. When was the last time you said, I do as my Father commanded me? You'd probably say, mm -mm, no one commands me. But Jesus says, I do as the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. His obedience is in perfect submission to the Father. The world and even we sometimes see the word submission as a dirty word. But Christ embraces submission. He doesn't, he's not disgusted by it. He embraces it like no other. And his submissive obedience is not begrudging. It's not resentful. He doesn't roll his eyes or kiss his teeth, but he joyfully obeys. And interestingly, our text today says he became obedient to the point of death which if we pay close attention to is a bit of an odd statement because throughout the biblical story, we see that obedience is coupled with life and disobedience is coupled with death. When we are called to be obedient, uh, we are not willing. 
we are not satisfied to do God's will. We want to do our will. And this leads to death. We see this in the Garden of Eden. But Jesus, who is joyfully and willingly obedient, does so on our behalf, which is why his obedience led to his death, because that death was for us. Jesus Christ in his life fulfills the law of God in such a way that we are humanly unable to. But the extent of the humility and love of God within the heart of Jesus Christ caused him to live a life, that perfectly obedient life, so that he himself could become our righteousness. He will be the righteousness and perfection that we could not and cannot um, and would not possibly obtain with all of our human effort. He lived that perfect life on our behalf and suffered death on our behalf in order that we no longer will be excluded from relationship with God because of our disobedience. And he didn't deserve to die. He did not bring upon himself the need for any kind of penalty or punishment. Yet for you and for me, in full humility, the Lord God chose to lay his life down. And he displays his humility in this third way. Christ descended into a shameful death. The cross is the supreme moment of Christ's servanthood and humility. This is how far Christ will go to save us. Not just becoming a human, not just being obedient, not even just death, but even death on a cross. And crucifixion on the cross is not a valiant, victorious kind of death. It is purposely demeaning. It is, it is categorically for the shaming of and the humiliation and the abuse of the criminal. It was described by individuals of the time as an extreme and ultimate punishment of slaves. It's described um, as the cruelest and most disgusting penalty, the most pitiable of deaths. Cicero, uh, who was a Roman statesman at the time, says, Let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. The cross is that repulsive, reserved for the lowest of the low of society. Yet Jesus, the Most High, took that upon himself. The whole point of Christmas, the incarnation of Christ and him living as a human in a human body is for this very moment. His body was formed to take this particular kind of punishment. John Piper notes, he became a human because he couldn't die immortal. He had to become mortal. He needed a body, he needed limbs a nervous system, a face. He needed wrists and feet to take the nails. He needed a back to receive whips. And in one sense, he didn't die a heroic death. 
it was pitiful and shameful. In the past, I've often imagined Christ's sufferings to be as valiant, as strong as someone, say, like uh, Maximus from Gladiator, who is fearless until the very end. But the crucifixion isn't that movie moment with a soundtrack playing. Even before Jesus died, he wanted to avoid having to go through this kind of suffering. The gospel writers describe him as a man who is deeply distressed and visibly shaken and anxious, afraid of what is coming next for him. And Hollywood doesn't depict that kind of hero because that kind of hero doesn't look good. He doesn't seem like a hero at all. And during the process of his crucifixion, again, it's not this honorable kind of death that you look upon with admiration. He was publicly violated and abused and mistreated. He was spat on. I mean, the level of disrespect you have to have for someone to spit on them. He was defensively beaten until he was unrecognizable. I know some of you are probably thinking, is this a Christmas sermon? Yes, this is a Christmas sermon. <laughs> and the mindset of the people watching isn't, he's doing a great thing, he's a wonderful lad, he's a wonderful guy. They're more thinking along the lines of, uh, this man is cursed. For the Jews, the cross was a public declaration that you're under God's curse. As it says in Deuteronomy, curse is every man who hangs on a tree. And we have very censored images of Jesus on the cross. Um, but he was crucified naked, completely exposed for all to see his shame. I'm, I'm not sure how much lower you can get than that. And in that moment of his crucifixion, there is cosmic separation between himself and the Father, which is far more horrific than the physical pain he is enduring, which is why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's quite unimaginable to think about or fathom what he experienced. But this is the heart of our Lord, completely selfless, looking not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. The cross is the deepest, deepest revelation of the character of God, shown not through what is visibly glorious to us, but in weakness and in suffering and in death on a cross. And when I think about this, I think of my Muslim friends who would say, Brother, how can God die? God is too glorious and too powerful to have to endure this. He could never and would never do such a thing. But what this text shows me is the depth and, or the depth of the heart and love of God. Allah or any other God, does not have this deep love, this deep level of love, so as to unrobe himself of his glory, being so committed to your joy and my joy that he was willing to plunge into the depth, the greatest depths of suffering himself for you. Allah and other gods are too self-important, in fact. In fact, they are not glorious enough to accomplish what God in Jesus Christ accomplished in his life and in his death. 
Allah's love for his people is not as far-reaching. His glory is too fragile because he would consider it robbery if he had to humble himself. Humility is not in his nature. And what my Muslim and unbelieving friends fail to realize is that this moment of shame is, in fact, the most heroic, the most glorious and illustrious, majestic, spectacular, most saving event and expression of the character, mind and heart of, and power of God in all of human history. In 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25, it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discerning, or the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God that through folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks demand wisdom and my Muslim friends demand raw power. But we preach Christ and Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power and wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God, him becoming a human, living an obedient life and dying on a cross, is stronger than men. The weakness of God on the cross is the very means by which he displays his great power over sin and death. And we know this is true because verse 9 to 11 of Philippians 2 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is high. He became low and now is the highest. He humbled himself and descended to the point at which now everything else will humble itself and descend before him. The weakness of God on the cross is the very means by which he displays his great power over sin and death. His weakness expresses the great love and power of God in and for our salvation. The world loves to latch onto the phrase that God is love. They'll say, I just feel it. When I feel love, I know I feel God. But let's read where that phrase originally comes from. 1 John 4, 8 to 10, starting at the, verse of verse, um, starting at the end of verse 8. God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. How wonderful is this love that plunges into the, depth, the depths of suffering to save us. 
Christ, the one true gift, experience shame, the deepest shame, so that we no longer have to experience and live with the shame of our own sin. We no longer have to experience and live with the weight of sin and its consequences because Christ paid for our sins on the cross and he clothes us with his perfect obedience. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might, be, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. <coughs> so in response to the humble descent of Christ, my question is, what does that speak to my life and to your life this Christmas and beyond. I think this text, this text offers us two things. It offers us Christological countercultural instruction and deep and unparalleled consolation. The instruction within this text is that for we who believe, we are to have this kind of mind, the same mind that Jesus had. We are to have a mind that does nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility counts and values and thinks of others as more significant than our own selves. It is a mind that looks not to its own interests, but to the interests of others. We are to be this kind of community of people uh, with this kind of mind because Jesus suffered especially to create this new community which we have been brought, in, been brought into. The wisdom of the world teaches us that we are first, that our, individ our individuality is most important, our opinion, our feelings, our experiences, uh, ourselves are the most important. It teaches us that self-obsession and self-entitlement and self-preoccupation is normal and acceptable. But Jesus' sacrifice teaches us a better and more glorious way. Yet, this way we are taught in this verse is very hard, and it involves suffering. It removes you from your place of comfort. It is the humble way. But in the end, at the end of this way, there is glory. And it's hard because we cannot help but think of ourselves before others. It seems against our nature to do so. But this is the way to which we are called. Yet for this way, there is the truest reward. The Lord resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The Lord humbles the proud, but he exalts the humble. And we see that perfectly embodied in the Lord Jesus. So I encourage you, because of Jesus, stop thinking about yourself and what others can do for you. And think about others. I'm not encouraging you to be unwise um, or to uh, be a doormat or to inconvenience yourself to the point of death. But God himself, who is entitled to everything, laid aside his own entitlement for the good of others. So we can boldly pray to have this kind of mind. How do you think about other people? Do you view others as more significant than yourselves? Or do you view others as lesser? 
Do you think in ways that only benefit you? Are others lesser because they aren't as intelligent as you? Or because they have different opinions? Or because they don't fit your social requirements? In fact, do you even think about other people in your life? To you, I say, based on the humble love of Jesus, count others more significant than yourselves. How do you speak to other people? Are you coarse? Because that's just how you are. You're just coarse. Do you speak rudely? Do you only speak to hear the sound of your own voice? Can you only speak politely if you're in the right mood? Somebody say, ouch. Do you talk too much? Must you win every argument? Must you begin every argument? To you, I say, based on the humble love of Jesus, count others more significant than yourselves. How do you treat other people? Is your aim to come out on top? Do you struggle to let things go based on your so-called principles? Do you wait for others to do things for you before you lift a finger? Do you go out of your way to reach out to people or are you waiting to be reached? To you, I say, based on the humble love of Christ, count others more significant than yourselves. Based on Jesus' deep love that none of us deserve, count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. This is the better and more glorious way. Lastly, from our text, we are offered extraordinary consolation. One thing that is particularly striking about Philippians 2 verse 8 is that it speaks greatly to the issue of God in relation to suffering. In a year like this, filled with plague and death, and medical and economical, educational, financial crisis, a year filled with social, political, racial, and even ecclesial unrest. A year full of personal problems because of the lockdown. Uh, the divorce rates are going up. Uh, friendships are torn apart. Families are torn apart. We've even experienced the estrangement in our own fellowship. What comfort, my question is, what comfort do we have in Christ that differs from every other belief system? We can often think that God is detached from and indifferent to suffering. We look at what goes on in the world on a daily basis and see suffering constantly. Someone somewhere in the world right now, as I speak, is suffering. And we can be tempted into thinking that God is negligent. He is uninvolved and withdrawn, not understanding our experiences or not having enough care for even our own individual experiences. But the message of Christmas offers us something that other belief systems do not have. They cannot offer it. Atheism may offer us science and rationalism as a way to understand the material world, but it cannot give us hope. 
Because if all we see is all there is and there is nothing more, then life and all of our suffering is completely meaningless. Islam offers us a God who requires obedience by force and submission, and the only thing it can tell us about suffering is that life is a test, so try your best. Postmodernism and selfism may offer us the freedom to be whoever we want to be, but this idea is flawed. Because if a fish decides that it wants to live on dry ground, he may believe he is free, but once he is up there, he will quickly find death. Selfism doesn't realize that hope cannot be found inwardly because we are broken and twisted and sinful, in need of saving, that recreating yourself cannot save you. African spirituality and Kemetic religion and black Hebrew Israelism and the like may offer us a form of ethnic identity and belonging. It may offer us the feeling of being in tune with the ancestors. But hope cannot be found in ethnic identity alone. Our sad human condition has pervaded all of human history in all kinds of people. The ancestors cannot save you. Your ethnicity cannot save you. In fact, our ancestors face the same problems that we do, that ultimately we do not know God unless he has made himself known to us. The message of Christmas, on the other hand, offers us God, not detached, but engaged. Not uninvolved and withdrawn, but near and committed to us. Our Lord is not distant and aloof, but he feels with us. His claim to know suffering is not theoretical, but he knows sufferings for himself, firsthand, personally. If you're listening today and you're unsure if God is loving, or you feel that he is unreachable, or indifferent, or distant, I pray that God would enlarge your view of him. Philippians verse two, chapter 2 verse 8 tells us the truth that God is involved, God knows our suffering, and God cares. His nature is that he moves toward those in need, not away from them. Isaiah 57 verse 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits all of eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of lowly and contrite spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God is not formulaic or transactional, but he is personal. He doesn't simply tolerate you, but he loves you and demonstrates it by unrobing himself, exposing himself to the deepest lengths um, of suffering and wholeheartedly giving himself for you. By becoming human, he entered into our suffering. And therefore, he is the only truly compassionate, sympathetic, and empathetic person. He truly cares and understands. By virtue of his incarnation, he is able to fully and comprehensively identify with us when we suffer when life is hard. Why? Because he suffered as a human like we do. 
In fact, his suffering went beyond the suffering that we will ever experience as humans. He knows firsthand despair. He knows firsthand rejection and loneliness and poverty and bereavement and shame and anxiety and pain. We have a God who knows the feeling of living in this cursed world. But he not only experienced the world for the sake of it, but he came to reverse the curse. He became the curse himself on the cross. This quote from John Stott um, will help illustrate my point. I could never believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha with his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile on, and playing around his mouth, a remote look in his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I have had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through feet and hands, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsakenness. That is the God for me. God laid aside his immunity to pain. God laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood and tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of his. There is still a question mark against human suffering. But over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in a world such as ours. The other gods were strong, but you, Jesus, were weak. They rode, but you stumbled to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but you alone. To our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. Though he doesn't immediately take away our suffering, we know that it's not because he doesn't love us. But we do know that he is in it with us. He is in it with you, in that low place. He who is high descends and comes to dwell with you. He truly is Emmanuel, God with us. And to those who believe, nothing can separate you from his love, his selfless, humble, personal, life-giving love. He is our great high priest, brothers and sisters. Hebrews 4, verse 14 to 16 says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. The other gods cannot sympathize with our weaknesses because they didn't experience them. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Brothers and sisters, because of Jesus, we are the only people in the world who can find mercy and grace in our time of need. We have a hope that no one else has. So let us draw near to him this Christmas. It's been a hard year. It's been a devastating year for all of us. Even if it wasn't COVID, you may have been struggling with other things. You may have suffered bereavement and suffered loss. You may have lost your job. I encourage you, draw near to Jesus to find mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. Dane Ortland said, Jesus is not trigger happy. He is not harsh or reactionary or easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not the pointed finger, but open arms. I encourage you and I invite you to listen to the call of God today, however he is calling you. He does so with open arms. Look to, look upon, and believe upon the Lord Jesus. I'm pleading with you to look to, look upon, and believe on the Lord Jesus. I pray that you have a blessed week and you have a blessed Christmas. God bless you. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your